I'd like to read um, a passage of scripture. It's First John, and I'd like to read chapter 1. Um, I'm not going to be working from this passage this morning, but ultimately that's where I would like us to end up as we uh, think about a particular theme in our Being Human series. First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you, may, you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we'll bring the reading to an end at that point. My theme for this morning on the Being Human series is Being Human, Being Perfect. If I give you a list of numbers, I'm sure there's a few of you around here will be able to tell me the significance of these. The numbers are as follows, 6, 28, 496, 8,128. What are they? They are a progression, but there is a name for these apparently. Any maths people know what they are? Perfect numbers. Yes, they are perfect numbers. I have this week been trying to read up on this and I still can't work out for the life of me why 628, 496, 8,128 and a dose more numbers are actually perfect. But apparently they are. It's got to do with what they can be divided by and multiply. I don't know. Anyway, they are perfect numbers. And if you can help me with that later on, I'd appreciate it. I don't know whether there's any perfectionists here this morning or not. Um, anybody interested in psychology will be able to tell you that um, perfectionism can have a pathological form, an unhealthy belief that anything less than perfect is unacceptable. Let me tell you the story of one doctor, and this is not a reflection on all doctors, uh, Naomi Remen, a physician trained at Cornell Medical College and Stanford University, calls herself a recovering perfectionist. I never actually got quite that far to be a recovering perfectionist. She says that perfectionism is an addiction just as alcoholism is. She had a perfectionist father. She had to have perfect grades in school. The daughter of a perfectionist had no choice but to be perfect. If she got 98 out of 100 on a test, her father would say, what happened to the other two? 
She says she spent a lot of anxious moments in her childhood chasing those two points. On the other hand, if she got 100 out of 100 in a test, her father would say, that's what we expect. She recounts her experience of taking a test in order to get a Californian driving license. For three days, she read and researched long hours to learn everything she could possibly could on the rules of driving in California. As expected, she scored 100%. Being ecstatic, she rushed home to see her boyfriend and announced, I got a 100% score in the driving test. And he lifted his head from his book and said, why on earth would you want to do that? She says that's when it hit her that all that was required of her in order to get a driving license was to pass the test. It wasn't necessary to get a perfect score. The writer who's writing up her story says she was an adult at that point. Her father wasn't standing over her head and demanding a perfect score. She realized, however, that she was not a free human being. She was a slave of her perfectionism. She was still afraid of losing those two points out of a hundred. Perfectionists work out of fear rather than a natural love of the object of their pursuit. Plenty of books around these days to help you with everything that needs to be perfect. There's the perfect body. Modesty prevents me suggesting where you should be looking for that this morning. Um, There's the perfect outfit. There's the perfect this, that and the other thing. And buy whatever magazines you like off the shelves in the shops and everybody's helping you to get whatever is perfect. Provided you've got the money to buy it, of course. You can even have the perfect marriage, by which they actually mean the perfect wedding day, and they'll sell you lots of stuff for that. Or you could have the kind of perfect marriage that the Moonies talk about. They say that before Adam and Eve were married, uh, before their marriage in in Eden, Eve had an affair with the archangel Lucifer, which caused the spiritual fall of mankind. And... Then their sin led to Satan taking control of the world and God's original plan for Jesus Christ was to form a perfect marriage in order to redeem humanity and undo the harm perpetrated by Adam and Eve. And since Jesus was executed before accomplishing his mission, it will be up to a third Adam to perform this perfect marriage and complete Jesus' task. And the third Adam was born in Korea between 1917 and 1930 and he will be recognized as the second coming of Christ, the perfect man. He will marry the perfect woman and will become the true spiritual parents of mankind. Some members of the Unification Church regard the Reverend Moon and his current wife as these parents. The church has never actually made those claims. Did you know that? The perfect marriage. Heavily laden with all kinds of stuff. Then, of course, there's the perfect child. The perfect child that sleeps all night from the age of three days, never soils their nappy without warning you first, and never at inappropriate moments. Uh, Some of us were those perfect children. Modesty, again, prevents me suggesting where you should be looking for this. But we would just love to have the perfect child, and we would love to have them perfect the whole way they grow up, and that they work out perfectly. Well, whether you strive and struggle to achieve perfection in every task of life, or whether you consider yourself to be the perfect slob, few of us live contentedly with our lot or with our performance. It's not something new to the 21st century, but given all our spare cash and spare time, and believe me, compared to the way many in the rest of the world eke out a living, we've got a lot of spare cash and a lot of spare time. We are particularly prone to this perfect whatever, seeking it and buying into it. We're suckers for being sold the secret to the perfect whatever it is. Which means many of us get very freaked out when we read the Bible and we read what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 when he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
we buy into the notion of perfection as something attainable. We hear Jesus saying, be perfect as your father is perfect. And all of a sudden, that's a verse we want to gently erase from the Bible because we know we've got a problem with that one. Or we read Jesus when he's speaking to the rich young man. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And for us in the 21st century Western world, that's another verse. It would be much easier to just delete because perfect in that context is deeply troubling. And it's not just Jesus who develops this theme. Paul gets into it as well, calling for perfection. And describing his ministry as seeking to present everyone as perfect. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Uh, he talks in 2 Corinthians 13 about aim for perfection listen to me my appeal be of one mind live at peace and the god of love and peace will be with you as we think about being human and we think about things being perfect whether it's something we're heavily into or whether it's something that just troubles us from time to time as we think about our own spiritual lives and our own moral lives there are two things i think we need to do as we think about this theme of being perfect this morning the first is to be honest and the second is to be clear First of all, to be honest about the downsides of perfectionism, whether in life or in religion. Wanting to do things right is not wrong. Wanting to succeed is not a sign of failure. Wanting to do your best is not necessarily a sign of serious pathological disorder. Sloppy work, carelessness and indifference are certainly not preferable to doing things right, succeeding or doing your best. And the truth is we're all wired differently. And personality difference has a lot to do with how we do things and how we like to see things done. I remember the comedy The Odd Couple on TV many years ago, a humorous take on the difference of personalities in that context. However, sometimes we don't notice when we're simply losing the plot. Sometimes we need to be honest that all we're doing is making other people miserable because we're miserable and can't live with ourselves and our own feelings or shortcomings. Sometimes we excuse rudeness on the basis that we're perfectionists. We like things to be done right, and that's our rationale for putting other people down. Sometimes we excuse arrogance on the basis that we're perfectionists and we really just can't put up with the poor quality of what everybody else does. Sometimes we're not capable of ever seeing any good in anyone else's efforts and we don't have the capacity to praise or to respect. However, needing to have everything perfect or being afraid of not being perfect can be a problem. Besides making us very irritating to live with and making us into very crabbed people, it can become very debilitating. And you can see the way this translates into the Christian life. Some Christians find it hard to resolve the tension between believing that they have been forgiven and are being sanctified and continuing to sin, to fail, to come short of the Bible's standards in their personal, moral and spiritual lives. Some people find it hard to cope with church life because it seems to fall so far short of the ideal they think they read about in the New Testament. 
The people around them just don't come up to the standard that they set for them. Never mind what the Bible says. On the one hand, sometimes we are Christians who can't cope with ourselves. And on the other hand, sometimes we are Christians who can't cope with other Christians. Truthfully, two things often go very closely together. And often the problem is some kind of perfectionist mindset, which may well have its origins in family or personal or professional life, but it infects and affects our Christian life and relationships. And because we buy into this model in our 21st century Western affluence that you can have everything perfect, we demand it, we expect it, especially of other people. And whether a tendency towards perfectionism comes from our parents or our personality or our fears, let's be honest about it and the dangers. Because truthfully, if our problem is a critical spirit, then let's not hide behind being a perfectionist. If our problem is our dislike of other people, let's be honest about it. If our problem is about our own inner struggles, let's name them and address them. So I think the first thing we need to do is be honest. The second thing we need to do is be clear as to what the Bible means when it talks about being perfect. Whatever the Apostle Paul means when he talks about perfecting holiness or presenting everyone perfect or aiming for perfection, all quotes from the Apostle Paul, it doesn't mean achieving perfection. If you listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, where he's been very open and very honest and very straightforward with a bunch of people who know him very well and therefore will not be shocked at what he's saying. He talks about how whatever was to his profit he considers loss for the sake of Christ. He considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's important that we don't load onto Paul's words or scripture generally unrealistic, unachievable or contradictory weights or expectations in regard to perfectionism. Perfect, used in an absolute sense as we do in the English language, in the Bible is used only properly of God. Or how things will be when God has finished his work of reconciliation and redemption. The Bible will speak of God's ways being perfect. It will speak about his good and perfect will. And there isn't a problem of using perfect in that sense, the sense of utter faultlessness when dealing with God. But the term perfect can also and is also in different places translated slightly differently as maybe whole or undivided or mature. And from a human standpoint, the call to be perfect is a call to be whole Christians or mature Christians or rounded Christians or Christians of integrity. The Bible doesn't set out a call to an impossible absolute perfection. The Bible doesn't play games with us. And if you listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in its context, you get the drift of what is actually happening there. Because in Matthew chapter 5, we're dealing, particularly from verse 43, with the challenge and the, the call to love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your enemies, your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he uses an illustration, verse 45. 
so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven who causes his Son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the thrust of what he's saying is, as God loves both the righteous and the unrighteous, acts fairly and justly with both the righteous and the unrighteous, then you do the same. And that's the context in which he uses those words, be perfect therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The NIV reading of Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, where the Apostle Paul talks about presenting everyone perfect in Christ, is slightly different when you look at it in the New Revised Standard Version, where it talks about that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Same word, same term, perfectly legitimate way of translating it. One seeking more to be consistent in the way they have used the word in other places, one seeking more to get the sense of it in the context. So let's be clear, the Bible is not setting up impossible standards. The Bible is not asking us to play games with ourselves. The Bible is realistic. It is not as if there is some utterly impossible standard which you must keep up to all the time to know that you're a Christian, to know God's love, to know that you're saved, to know that you're going to heaven. It doesn't say that, it doesn't ask that. That would be utterly impossible and that's actually what the Bible says because that's why grace is so important and that's why it makes a difference. So we need to be honest about ourselves and we need to be clear about what the Bible is actually saying. Which leaves me with three implications I want to draw from this consideration this morning very briefly. And that's when I come to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. The first implication is this. Let's not deceive ourselves about ourselves. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are together in this room, however long we have been Christians or whether we don't profess to be Christians or not, we are together, all of us, sinners. It does not mean that we just do little things now and again that is wrong. It means that we are by nature and by choice rebels against God and his standards of justice and holiness. And we need to have the humility to acknowledge that, first of all to ourselves and with each other. We need to have the humility to acknowledge that as we wrestle with our attitudes, relationships and difficulties, we are often the contributors, not necessarily the victims. And we need to be honest that if we say there is no sin in us, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's the first implication. Second implication is that we need to be very careful that we do not persecute ourselves unnecessarily. Just as, some have, just as some have to come to terms with their own contribution to the mess, others have to come to terms with the fact that God loves them even though they're not perfect. John would say two things to anybody here this morning in that camp. He would go on in verse 9 of 1 John 1 to say, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John will also say in verse 10 of chapter 4, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's not persecute ourselves in believing 
or thinking or assuming that we rule ourselves out of the measure of God's love and God's grace because we're not perfect. It is the imperfect, the sinful, the rebel, the sinner that Christ died for. That's why we speak of his death as an atoning death on the cross, bearing the full weight of just justice for human sinfulness. So let's not deceive ourselves, but let's not unnecessarily persecute ourselves. And thirdly, let's not persecute others or make their lives miserable. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 and 20. John is developing this theme of love and what it means to be in a right relationship with God. And he says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Let us love with actions and in truth. Let's not just come here on a Sunday morning and pay lip service to the concept of the love of God in Christ. That means allowing for each other's sinfulness and feelings. That means making space for other people to get things wrong and even to do bad things. It doesn't mean you condone it. But it does mean, mean that we accept one another on the basis that not only am I a sinner, but yes, truthfully, so are you. I'll make mistakes, but then so will the people around me. Living out Jesus' statement of let him who is without sin cast the first stone is a long step forward in learning not to persecute others or make their, their lives miserable as we persecute ourselves about our lack of perfection. So I think those are things we need to think about this morning. And I would say this in closing. If we struggle with this, and if we can't get a balance on this, there is a great danger that we minimize or belittle the love of God. If we have a perverse attitude to ourselves or others, inevitably we will have a perverse attitude to God. There is a danger that we will make God's love and Christ's death a nonsense because we feel ourselves to be too good to be in need of it. Or we make God's love and Christ's death ineffective because we say we're too bad, even for God. Either way, those are perverse attitudes which do not do justice to the love of God and Christ. Self-deception makes a mockery of the cross. Self-deprecation makes a mockery of the cross. Selfishness makes a mockery of the cross. May God give us the grace in being human to understand what it means to be perfect.